0: we tend to cram and try to cram so much into our life from moment to moment that we don't really have the white space between the things that we try to cram. This is the time that you should be just letting your mind rest a little bit and think, okay, where is it going to wander off to today? What daydream is going to lead to my next million dollar insight? What random wandering that my mind goes down will lead to a total shift of how I think about my life, my career, my family, my relationships, how I have fun, how I manage my finances, how I become more resilient, what habits I'm going to have. These are all beautiful things that come out of the white space between the things that we do.
1: Hello everyone, my name is Julie Masters and welcome to another episode of Inside Influence in which I delve into the minds of some of the world's most fascinating influencers or experts in influence to get to the bottom of what it really takes to own your voice and then amplify it to drive an industry, a conversation, a movement or a nation. Now, when you listen to this podcast, are you only listening to this podcast? Or when you listen, are you cooking, driving, working, working out, all or a few of the above? Now, chances are that you're not solely focusing on this podcast, as much as I might like to think that you are. Most likely, you're doing something else. And in fact, when you think about it, when was the last time you shut down all distractions and focused on one thing utterly and completely? And why am I even asking these questions? I mean, what does any of this have to do with influence anyway? Now, the answer to that question is everything. If there is one thing that I know for sure, it is this. We can have no influence, not over ourselves, not over our organizations, our networks or our communities, without first mastering the ability to focus. The most influential people that you know are the most focused. And I'll say that again because it's important. The most influential people that you know are the most focused. They are the most able to tune out all the noise and focus in, just drill in on essential signals. And in doing that, they create a force that is strong enough to pierce through the noise of other people's lives, long enough and consistently enough to create an equally focused following around them and their ideas. Now add to that the unfortunate fact that there are no shortages of distractions right now. No shortage of screaming elements that are as urgent as they are important. The future of the economy, let's name some, important social unrest in our societies, uh, a health pandemic, the well-being, emotional and physical, and continued isolation from our families, educating and entertaining our children at home, that's still going on for many of us, trying to keep our jobs and our businesses alive, not to mention the ever-ready call of social media just to remind you of everything else you probably don't have the time or the bandwidth to even consider adding to your plate right now. You know the things, running a marathon, cooking the perfect bruschetta, the list goes on. Plus, and I promise I will stop soon, there's this whispering opportunity right now that many of us seem to be feeling. The opportunity to look deeply at our lives, our careers, our businesses, and redesign them. Now for some, that's A redesigning of their lives to include more breaks, more white space, more connection. And for others, it's transitioning to a new business model, a new new way of operating, a new target market, a new road to market that's going to put you and your team in the strongest possible position for whatever's coming next. So, have I made my case yet? Focus and how we deal with distractions has everything to do with influence. Now my guest today, he's been making this case for over 15 years. Chris Bailey believes in a human approach to productivity and focus, i.e. no spreadsheets in sight, a fact that makes me truly happy. His fascination, Chris's fascination with focus first led him to dedicating a year after college when he turned down all of the job opportunities in order to focus down and experiment a year of his life with productivity, basically trying to figure out how to get the most done in the least possible amount of time. He used himself as a guinea pig to run experiments that included working a 90 hour week versus I think it was a 30 hour week, watching 70 hours of TED talks in seven days to see what he could retain, making himself bored for a month and just wait and see what he put himself through to try and create this particular situation, just to see where his mind wandered and what he could create with those wanderings. All this with the aim to learn and share how we can focus more deeply overcome procrastination and energize ourselves in the process. Now, the result of that 12-month experiment was his first book, The Productivity Project. Accomplishing more, I'm going to get this right, accomplishing more by managing your time, attention and energy. The book was a massive success, translated into more languages than I've ever heard of. But then Chris started to notice something else. And he noticed that his old unfocused habits were were just creeping back in, particularly when it came to technology. And that realisation, that led to his second book, the manual he needed but he couldn't find, Hyperfocus, How to Be More Productive in a World of Distraction. Now that book, both books, but this book in particular, I cannot recommend highly enough and became the catalyst to me reaching out to him and requesting this conversation. In this episode the conversation that I needed, but hadn't been able to find, we dive into the one thing that we, i.e. I, need to hear the most. And that's that it's not our fault that we're distracted. Apparently, we're hardwired for novelty, for reasons that we'll get into, and that every time we discover a new or a novel thing, hello, social media, our brain gives us an addictive hit of dopamine. So if you can give yourself a pass for that and be kinder to yourself in those moments, That's the first step to a better attention span. Following on from that, we talk about how to embrace the break. That includes, does not include breaking it with anybody. That includes learning to read our cues about when it's time to take a break. We all have cues. We all have tells when our bodies are trying to indicate us that we need to take a break. And by the way, looking at your phone is not taking a break. Sorry about that. The rule of three This is one of Chris's top focus tips and one that I'm actually implementing at the moment and it's game changing for me. Each morning, he picks three intentions for his day. Out of the many he has on his plate and before anything else, he just gets them done. Sounds simple, is not. Also, we talk about how not to fear white space, which is another word for that, you know, that in-between time, that in-between time, either in-between meetings, in-between jobs, in-between... Moments of intense hustle that we often avoid. We avoid in between time or we try and fill it with stimuli. And how harnessing that space, that white space, that pause is actually the key to becoming an extremely effective decision maker. And finally, the joy of email sprints, which I can promise you does not require activewear, but does get the never ending monkey of your inbox off your back for good. So no more distractions from me. Time to press pause on whatever you're doing or just pick one of the many things that you're doing and stop doing that and get set to consider or experiment with a new way of working with the force of focus that is Chris Bailey. Welcome to the podcast, Chris Bailey.
0: Julie. How are you?
1: I'm good. I'm good. We're we were literally just chatting before coming on air about the fact that you're deep into the office right now, which yeah. just I think Bears mention.
0: As to the how good uh, US is the version office. I should say. And uh I'm a bit of a laggard with regard to TV and movies and stuff like that, but it's a great, great show. Yeah.
1: It's a great show. I can only watch it in small pieces though. It it just makes my it's too real.
0: <laughs> just well, well, you were crawl. saying, you know, you can't stand how kind of cringeworthy some moments are uh, uh, of of the UK office at the very least.
1: Yeah, Ricky Gervais is just amazing. He's yeah. just amazing. He's too good. Like I can watch it in small bits, but then yeah. the cringe factor kicks in and I just have to press pause
0: <laughs> for a little bit. It's, it's, it's like this cilantro of TV shows where you might put a little bit of cilantro on your salad, but you'd never eat a whole bowl of it. Yeah. Like that cringe factor really... You know, it, it creates a ceiling for how much you can watch.
1: I don't think I've ever kicked the podcast off with a um with a Netflix T V review before. But here we mm-hmm. go. I, I, Nine it out of ten stars.
0: Thank the you. Office. If you've never seen it, I think you've probably seen it, but it's very good if you haven't.
1: <laughs> it actually it does actually bring me nicely to, to my first question. One of the one of the things I noticed first up when I when I kind of dived into your world is that you you're a self confessed nerd, which Get right with you there, right with you there, um, and I've come to I've come to embrace my inner nerd. I think I used to hide her a little bit, but I'm I'm full nerd now. But what are you? I usually kick this I usually kick this podcast off by saying what's what's the most influential idea you've heard recently? But I'll just rephrase it. What What are you nerding out on at the moment? Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, I, I guess we start this one off with a Netflix review. New new format for the show. A, ne- <laughs> what's a review of something you've seen on Netflix that you're probably the last person in the world to see it, and B, what's something you're a nerd about? Uh, but right now, it's uh, you know I'm digging into a lot on typography, uh, so the study of fonts essentially, you know what makes a good font, what makes a good font for, you know the, the, every font's different, it, it, it kind of has its own style. You, you pick up a book and you open it, and you can tell based on what the font is like what that book is likely to be like uh so you know whenever i put out a book and uh you know they send proofs for for what it'll look like the internal design of it usually my my biggest amount of feedback is on the font like are we sure we want to go bookman here maybe for the we can go for like a, a sans serif with with the with the subheader like you, you know th- things like that just kind of the 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 hidden language of communication i think typography is um that technology i'm a huge nerd about i've always been a big nerd about what else right now just just a like a, a lot of uh, ideas and seeing what connects with what other ideas? The science behind music um, is something else I've been interested in lately. It's a uh, there's a lot. There's a, a lot mixed. of items on this list. It's yeah. a mixed bag. It's a potpourri. It? <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> and you know, um, you're probably the best, the best and the worst person to ask is somebody who, who digs into a topic as hard as as we will yeah. come to discuss in a minute. As hard as you dig in, so. The reason I wanted to, the reason I I asked you to to come onto the podcast, and the reason that I that I love your work is that that dovetail between influence and focus, and influence Mm. and productivity. You know, it's become really clear to me, and, and you know, I have a big quote up on my wall in my office around: you can't change anything, either in your own life or in the world around you without first being able to deliberately direct your attention. Deliberately, consciously, and consistently direct your attention. And you Mm -hmm. can't do that without learning how
0: to focus. Yeah. Yeah, you can't do anything without focus, can you?
1: Nothing nothing worthwhile. You can. I think you can do things without focus. You can do things mindlessly. You can do things um, in a numbing way. But anything worthwhile is very difficult to do without focus. And when I started kind of going into that productivity rabbit hole um i was i've got to say i was a little bit i was i was a little bit on the back foot i was a little bit like i don't know if i'm gonna like this like i'm not i'm not big on rules and systems and and things and i'm kind of more your chaos person but one of the very first things that you said was you know this is not the type of productivity that runs your life on a spreadsheet and i kind of went oh like like, good we can we can talk because i'm never (laughs) going to be that person um yeah you have a very human approach to productivity so can you tell me what a human approach to productivity looks like?
0: It's a good question. You know, I think what you just mentioned kind of hits the nail right on the head. When we hear the word productivity, so many of us think of something that is so cold and corporate and all about efficiency and boiling your life down to a spreadsheet and trying to extract more hustle and all this stuff out of every moment of every single day Kind of trying to hustle yourself into an early grave in a certain way, Uh, but I I don't think that's productivity at all. I I think you know when we start with the definition of productivity, what, what what should we look at in order to define what productivity should mean? When we do knowledge work for a living, because we're no no longer cranking widgets, right? Where if we made four widgets in a day instead of two, we were twice as productive because we produced uh, twice as much. Uh, You know, these days there's kind of that disconnect when we went from doing that factory type work to doing work with our minds rather than with our hands. Uh, So, you know, you know this, we all know this. If if we write 800 words in a day instead of 400, that doesn't mean we're twice as productive because the 800 words could have been garbage. <laughs> if, we, if we write 1,000 lines of code instead of 300 lines of code, that doesn't mean we're, we're more than three times as productive. If we produce code and write code that has fewer features and, and a greater number of bugs and accomplishes the, you know less, essentially. Uh, so I, I think it's so critical to start with what productivity should mean today when we do knowledge work. And I think you know, we have to connect that Again, forming connections with what makes us human, which I think is intentionality in a very large extent. It's not the only thing that makes us human. You know, our ability to tell stories is also what makes us human. Uh, I I remember, you know, listening to Barack Obama, some of the lessons he learned after his first uh, second term in office. And he said somebody, some reporter asked him, like, what's the greatest lesson you've learned from all this time leading the country and he said I'll, I'll never you know forget people's capacity to believe in a story and it is so true we think in stories we tell stories but intentionality you know this ability to predecide what we do before we do something i think is up there with storytelling in in respect to what makes us human. And I think it lies at the center of productivity these days. So my my definition of productivity is that we're perfectly productive when we accomplish what we intend to do. So what that means is if you intend to have that busy day, you know, clearing out your email inbox and acquiring five new clients and finding somebody new, new to bring onto your team, and then you do, you do accomplish what you set out to do. I would say that you're productive. But the same thing is true if your intention is to watch The Office and maybe eat some sunflower seeds while while you're watching The Office because that's my snack of choice. Maybe after that, I'll, I'll, my wife and I will probably play some games of cribbage tonight. Uh, so that'll be an intention. That I, it, th- these are my intentions for the day. And when I accomplish them, I I think I'm perfectly productive there, too, especially when those intentions come from a place of of what I value, of what provides my life, my days with meaning. And I think that's the first place to which we should be turning these days, Um, especially when we're going through such an overwhelming time. You know, there's there's countless movements to uh, to make ourselves uh, aware of and knowledgeable about. There's a pandemic So there's a virus also moving through the world uh, to to mind. And there's so many constraints under which we have to operate now. Many of us have kids at home that we're kind of wrangling their schedules around ours. But I I think intention is what should be at the center of productivity. All other ideas um, that we talk about, that we write about, should orbit around that. And as you said, active attention you know, it's 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 impo- it's impossible to accomplish anything of importance without active attention, um, because that's kind of the, the greatest currency right now uh, I- inside of our work.
1: And you started um, you started 15 years ago. I think it was about 15 years ago. Is it you that long? Me. You, I, so wow. my research tells me 15 years ago with twelve thousand dollars. Yeah. To and I'm not going to ask you know where you got your twelve thousand dollars from when I when I saw that I Drugs. was like that's okay I sold drug no I'm just kidding. fair call <laughs> fair, I mean that was I won't say it didn't occur to me <laughs> you seem very young to have twelve thousand dollars in savings but you did and twelve thousand dollars and you decided right I can live on twelve thousand dollars for a year which does seem like something you can do when you're young
0: yeah
1: and I'm going to dedicate a year of my life to trying to figure out productivity yeah now. What did that entail, and secondly, what was the most surprising thing that you found
0: yeah so it it, it wasn't drugs that allowed me to get the the twelve grand luckily <laughs> luckily uh, I, I did have a few internships I worked during uh, u- university so uh, essentially it got to the point where I graduated and I had this I you know this burning passion for productivity for that amount of time and and prior to that, in high school, I was always trying to think, okay, what's? Because at heart, if you can't tell, I'm a very lazy person. So I'm always trying to think of, okay, what what methods can I invest in here to get in high school? It turns out I was, you know, get 90 plus percent in all my classes while doing as little work as I possibly could. Uh, that attitude kind of went to university and those internships. That I'd worked at uh, up until the point where I graduated from university with, as you say, about 12 grand in my bank account, which isn't a lot. That's Canadian money, which I think is actually quite close to to the Australian dollar. Um, They kind of dance in tandem with one another. But I thought, you know, if there's ever a time that I should do something that deeply interests me, that fascinates me to no end, uh, which was exploring productivity, it was them. Uh, So I thought, okay. This is a risk, that, and it's something that is pretty hard to explain to your grandmother, to your family, to the people in your life. Uh, but graduating university, I, I, re- I had a few full-time job offers in my pocket, but I thought, okay, I'm going to decline the jobs and go out on a limb here. And dive deep into the science of productivity. Uh, you know, not everybody's cup of tea, but it was my cup of tea, and I, I wanted to dive deep I- into it. So for a full year, and this continues through to this day because I feel like the luckiest guy in the world that I get to do this stuff. Um, but you know I, I've been experimenting with productivity, doing weird experiments on myself, making myself bored for a month to see where my mind wanders to, watching 90 hours of TED Talks in a week to see uh, what information retention I, I could observe during that around taking breaks and naps and stuff like that, um, to working 90-hour weeks to see the effects of working crazy. And also, uh, the, you know, the, that was punctuated by 20-hour weeks, seeing the effects that that had on my productivity. Um, you know, watching Netflix for a month to seeing the effects of, of motivation and that, um, you know, countless, countless experiments uh, to try this stuff on for size uh, so so that I, I wasn't just somebody writing about something I was interested in, but rather I was somebody that was living The advice that I was doling out, so I I took a year, which has since turned into, by God, I'll I'll have to go back and count them. Maybe fifteen years of of researching this passion of mine, but all all in an effort to get to the bottom and of and and explore the science of what it means to to uh, accomplish more in a workplace setting and at home. You know how we can overcome procrastination, how we can focus more deeply, how we can. Uh, energize better, and not just rely too much on caffeine and caffeinate ourselves to exhaustion, just any idea related to the subject of productivity. You know, I think we're all nerds about a few things, you know, typography, uh, mechanical keyboards in my case as well. But productivity is the one that is at the top of the hill for me. uh, And I think it always will be
1: and what would, can you name just a few of the of the surprising things that you found during your your month of committing yourself to boredom your <laughs> your i mean we'll go into some of them in more detail but some of the wacky experiments and and also really insightful experiments
0: that you ran the boredom one was was kind of fun to dig into you know there there are different lessons from all of them uh but essentially i conducted the boredom experiment while researching focus and the science of attention, so I, I thought, okay you know i'm I'm kind of getting tired focusing on stuff all day, and so that that motivated me to do an experiment where I made myself bored for an hour a day for a month, and so I put a call out to the readers of my website at the time and I asked them okay what what 's the most boring thing that you can think of because i 'm going to do this for an hour a day um, and so I did things like I read the iTunes Terms and Conditions one day. Um, I waited on hold with Air Canada's baggage claims department another day. Uh, Another one of the activities was peeling exactly five potatoes, um, which actually turned into kind of a beautiful meditative experience. Uh, Another one, I watched One Cloud in the Sky and watched a ticking clock. Um, and, and I realized, you know, it, we, we become uncomfortable with our thoughts when we're bored. There there was one study that I encountered after conducting this experiment where a group of researchers, um, you know, they, they attach shock electrodes to people's ankles. And they shock them, and then they ask participants, okay, how much would you pay to not get shocked again? And people gave a dollar amount. Some people said, oh, I, I wouldn't mind being shocked again. Those people were eliminated from the experiment so that only people that would pay to not receive a shock would get shocked again. And it turns out that when those people that would have paid to not get shocked again by the experiment were left in a room with their own thoughts and the button that shocked them, 71% of men self-administered another electric shock to themselves (laughs) because they were so bored. Um, And explain this to me, Julie, only 26% of women did. Why do you think <laughs> that men are so much smarter in this regard if you had to? So
1: men were self-administering electric shocks for entertainment.
0: Mm. Yeah, 71% of them. Do you know, I don't, and 26... have,
1: I don't have an answer to that question, but I do, I do have a similar experience in so much as <laughs> just, just last week, my son, who's, who's one year of age, walking, walked up to a metal pole. And I watched oh. him and he held onto it with both hands and he headbutted it. And I stood there and I thought, I'm not going to intervene because I'm just going <laughs> to see. I'm going to see what happens now. And he pulled his head back and you could see he was just kind of considering it. And then he headbutted it again. And <laughs> I watched him headbutt this metal pole four times. And at that stage, you know, as a mother, as a responsible mother, you're like, OK, I'm going I'm <laughs> to get involved now. So either I was thinking either my son is very masochistic <laughs> Or there's something, I don't know, there's something experimental in um, in pain thresholds that he's playing with that my daughter never felt the need to. So I don't have an answer, but it is a question that I have yeah. at the moment.
0: It, it's a question that I think we all should ponder, but maybe it, maybe it starts early with men <laughs> where, I, where I, they like to, to do these things. I don't know.
1: But I think that the white space, <laughs> that white space question is... Is actually actually really interesting one. I think there's there's two yeah. things that I wanted to dive into there that you've just said. One was experimenting. And I think it's really easy to put people who dedicate their life to going really, really far down a rabbit hole on a topic and just go, Oh, well that's you know, that's kind of fun and interesting and, you know, but that's not my life. And to shift that thinking into, you know, what experiments can I run here? For an hour yeah. a day, for half an hour a day, for ten minutes. Whatever, whatever time you have, but to actually adopt an experimental mindset regardless of whether you've dedicated your life to it or not. And, you know, my hope is that anybody listening to this will take some experiments from what you're talking about, perhaps not to that length or intensity, but take Hopefully some not. and start playing with them.
0: <coughs> <Yeah. laughs>
1: the second thing was white space, and I do want to go into yeah. that because any pivot, and it's an overused word at the moment, any pivot I've ever made that was worth making, in my life, any change, any accomplishment came, and I've tracked it back, I've actually physically tracked it back, came from consciously creating a pause between chapters. Mm. And that's not always nice and often, you know, you'll fight it with every bone in your body because sitting in the in-between is deeply uncomfortable.
0: Yeah, you want to shock yourself.
1: You want to shock you yeah, exactly. You want to press the button because, you know, you're not, Anything anymore? You're, you know, you're not playing out on identity. You're not running fast. There's no adrenaline. You're just sat in the in between, or the white space. Yeah. Why is white space so important when it comes to creation?
0: Well, this is the the fascinating thing that I found during, you know, drilling down into this particular experiment. Um, it, it took me about a week, a little over a week to kind of adjust and and get used to the boredom. Uh, But once I did, I noticed that I could focus with with relative ease because my mind was so much less stimulated. And, you know, it, it kind of provided the lesson that we tend to cram and try to cram so much into our life from moment to moment that we don't really have, like you say, the white space between the things that we try to cram. Um you know there, there, one of the one of the other things I'm kind of interested in is is traffic flow so how traffic moves down a highway And if you look at what allows traffic to move forward, people think, oh, it's cars are moving fast. So, of course, they're moving forward. But the physics of traffic flow um, actually suggests a a different reason why traffic can flow down the highway. It turns out it doesn't really matter. It matters to a certain amount, but not as much as people think how fast cars are moving down a highway. But the research shows that what allows cars to move forward isn't how fast they move, but it's how much space exists between the cars on the highway. And so if you live in the upper floor of a building and you're look, looking down on a busy road, maybe the roads are less busy these days, but uh, if you can notice this phenomenon, I think our work and our life are the exact same way. Uh, you know, you look at that that kind of fallow time in between the things that we do, you know, just as I think that allows traffic to move forward. I think that little space between the things that we're doing throughout the day, whether we're at work or at home, that's what allows us to get things unstuck. Uh, that's what allows ideas to rise to the surface of our mind. And the research bears this out too. I, I usually don't find statistics that compelling because it's just just a number usually. But we, we know this in practice that we think about our goals more often when our mind is wandering. You know, take when you're taking a shower for an example, we come up with so many ideas and plans for the future. Then, uh, around Christmas and, and the New Year's break, when we have this moment to step back from our life and have a bit of white space, we tend to wander more to think about the future. And the research shows that we actually think about the future and our goals. Uh, we think about the future 14 times as much when our mind is wandering versus when we're focused. On something. Um, and, and we actually wander to think about the future 48% of the time when our mind is wandering. So we have this perspective bias built into our thoughts. You know, I, I'm, I'm pretty science minded, as you might be able to tell with this with regard to this stuff. But there's actual science behind the white space that we try to integrate into our life. And I really, really do think this is the time. Um, maybe your work is a bit slower right now. So I, I do a lot of Talks that have now turned into webinars these days, um, but that, I know a lot of folks are in that event industry. This is this is the ima- This is the time that you should be just letting your mind rest a little bit and think. Okay, where is it going to wander off to today? What daydream is going to lead to my next million dollar insight? What random wandering that my mind goes down will lead to a total shift of how I think about. My life, my career, my family, my relationships, how I have fun, how I manage my finances, how I become more resilient, what habits i 'm going to have these are all beautiful things that come out of the white space between the things that we do, so you know I, i'm i'm totally with you in this regard that you know just because you have a lot on your plate, that doesn 't make you productive or creative, you know focusing on those things does help. But what also makes us productive and creative is having space between the things that we do so we can wander a little bit. Um, you know, there's that great quote from J.R.R. Tolkien where he says that not all those who wander are lost. And I really, it's, it's one of the most compelling ideas, I think, with regard to focus today. Focus is incredible. You know, it helps us get the stuff done, helps us move our work forward. But this deliberate unfocusing, is up there as well.
1: I, you know, I've, when I talked about the white space in my life, for anybody who thinks that that sounds like I created that out of some form of wisdom, that would be very, very wrong. <laughs> you know, it's usually <laughs> times where, you know, I fought it and fought it and fought it because it's very easy to justify being busy. It's very easy yeah. to, to create an identity around being busy. It's very easy you know, to be busy is to feel like you are at least showing up, contributing, um, and it's easy to confuse busyness with productivity. But from, for anybody that, that's struggling with that justification out there, just to really put an underline over what you've just said, it sounds like you're saying you literally cannot, you cannot plan or make effective decisions, effective future based decisions, without consciously creating some form of white space.
0: Yeah, exactly. And and I would even go a step further, you know, well, I'm happy we chatted about the definition of productivity at the top, because it's really not about how much we produce, it's about how much we accomplish. And the the honest truth is that we can be busy all day long, and not accomplish a single thing. It's It's kind of this uh, business is kind of this form of unintentional laziness. If you're going to be lazy, don't be lazy like while you're checking your email. Be lazy watching the office or doing something that actually produces meaning in your life, um, not, not just kind of mindlessly checking email. But I think this is so critical, especially in the context of talking about the definition of what productivity means in the first place, where you know we, we kind of have a challenge in measuring our productivity, don't we? Because we can't look to how much we produced in a given day because we could write drivel, we can write crappy lines of code, we can send a lot of emails and not accomplish much. Uh, but I, I think our intentions are the benchmark against which we should be measuring our days. Um, and, and not just how busy we are. We tend to have these busy days and at the end of them we feel, oh, That was a busy day, and plus I'm exhausted, and so I must have been productive. You know, with the lack of signals for how productive we were, we look at to places like these, uh, but I I think it's so critical to remember that point, that busyness is really uh, no different from active laziness when it doesn't lead us to actually accomplish anything.
1: I I, want to shift gear. I want to shift gear on this one because when I was thinking about this interview beforehand and I was thinking about... You know, focus and white space. It took me to another place that just from my personal experience I can get stuck in. And that's over-focusing where Mm. I get into a mode where I think if I just – if I can sit here and stare at this problem for endless amounts of time, I know I'm going to nail it. I call it the Rubik's Cube I feel like you know when you just sit there and you stare at a Rubik's cube and you just will not stop, mm. even though you know you're not going to solve it in the next kind of forty eight hours, let alone forty yeah. minutes. I can get stuck and rigid, and and that's almost as bad as as I don't know as bad as laziness, where I'm just I'm not moving forward. I've glued myself to my chair. I will not move until I figured it out. Can you? What's the dance there? Between, okay, I'm gonna focus for this period of time, no distractions, yeah. high intentionality. And then I start to feel myself go into that rigid mode at some point where I'm I'm unwilling to move until I've solved it. Yeah. How do you dance with that?
0: <laughs> I, I think Is that just an existential question? <laughs> no, no, no. I, I think it's a matter of overcoming the guilt that we feel around taking breaks and realizing that we're less productive when we don't break. Um, I think that's kind of the critical thing. and We all have this kind of productivity mindset, don't we, where we're always thinking about, okay, how much am I accomplishing right now? And the productivity mindset, it leads us to overfocus because we're thinking, okay, why would I take a break when I have so much to do? Uh, when the honest truth is we need a break because we have so much to do. Uh, and so I, I think working in... Maybe a better maybe a better angle to come at this question with is I think it's important to have a set of cues that we realize in how we are working, that lead us to take a short little break. Uh, So for me, it's when I'm staring at the same email and rereading it four or five times, then I don't seem to have any new ideas. That's a sign I need to break for at least 15 minutes and maybe get some time in nature if at all I possibly can. Um, That might be a good uh, solution. Maybe there's a certain time of the day when our energy naturally dips. So that can serve as a cue for taking a break. And I think, you know, introducing these uh, kinds of things that we can observe in our own behavior, you know, that rereading the email or there's a certain stable of websites that we often check. So uh, I, I know personally when I'm feeling a bit fatigued, I'll immediately go to Safari on my computer, I'll type the letter N which pre-populates the address bar to nytimes.com. I'll click enter. Then I'll mindlessly scroll that for a few minutes. But the note, the moment I notice that compulsion to type the letter N in Safari, that's my signal. Okay, wait. I'm about to waste time. I'm a bit fatigued. I need a break right now. Uh, so whatever it, those uh, cues happen to be for you, we all have these moments where we essentially stall. You know, going maybe overusing the the highway analogy but maybe it's apt here we have moments where we kind of stall on that productivity highway and we think ah you know maybe if i reread twitter for the sixth time this hour maybe something new will appear that will make me a bit less angry even though i'm just getting more and more angry every time i check you know we can have these cues that we introduce Uh, in order to take a break that's a bit uh, less guilty because we real when we realize the power that a break can provide and make sure you do something that actually lets your mind wander a little bit, something that's simple, that's habitual. It could be, you know, taking a shower if you haven't taken one. It could be going for a little walk. It could be making a, a cup of tea. Um, something that lets your mind wander a little bit, I think, is the key with that. But yeah, have some cues.
1: But that's a there's a distinction there, right? Where it, you start to feel that compulsion and I I was nodding while you were saying that because I know as soon – because my phone is usually either away or turned over so I can't see what's going on and all my notifications are turned off. It's been on silent for the past 10 years, much to the annoyance of pretty much everybody that I know. (laughs) Um, However, when my hand goes to reach for that phone, that's that's the cue. Like that's the moment where I'm about to mindlessly start answering some texts, maybe check Instagram, maybe – but it's important not to confuse that with taking a break, with letting your mm-hmm. mind wander, because there's a difference. And tell me if I'm wrong. There's a difference between letting your mind wander for a break and plugging it into an iPhone. That's not actually yeah. letting your mind wander, although it feels like it is when you're scrolling through Instagram.
0: Yeah. And, and this is, you know, the the kind of mistake I think, and myself included, up until researching my latest book that that a lot of us make, where we think, OK, I'm right. kind of tired of work right now. So I'm going to do something that isn't work related, but that's still stimulating for my mind. And so these days that's checking the news, it's checking social media. And if anything, that makes your mind more stimulated in a time when you need that stimulation uh, the least. You need the opposite of stimulation. We, we need to let our mind wander a little bit. And anything habitual that we can do, because habituals, uh, uh, habitual tasks like You know, there's countless examples of them, Um, you know, from taking a shower to going for a walk to getting a tea or a coffee or uh, one of my favorite habits is knitting. Uh, So I'll I'll take a little break and do some knitting and have a notepad nearby. And when I notice, I always wait for my mind to let me know when it's time to work again. Uh, So it'll wander to think about something that I have to do. And I'll notice this almost compulsion to sit right up. And walk back to my computer i 'll wait for that compulsion because I know that that 's a, a signal that my mind has uh, is ready to switch back again because uh, that 's a signal that my attention wants to regulate itself in one way or another, and so it doesn 't want to uh, you know just kind of give up on what it 's focusing on um, and habitual tasks plus they lead us to more creative insights they 're fun we 're able to rest our mind a little bit we scatter our attention for longer because it waits us to the present moment. Um, but I I, I think that's kind of the key here is when you let your mind rest, frankly, like it's not that you, people are relaxing wrong. Maybe I shouldn't phrase it that way, but it's, we, it's that we deserve to relax better than we are right now. You know, frankly, Twitter isn't relaxing. We deserve better than that when we want to spend some time away from work. The compulsion is to check Twitter, but anything that is a compulsion, usually doesn't lead to behavior that is meaningful or satisfying beyond just the immediate term. Uh, so something to keep in mind that we, you know, th- it's possible to relax a bit better, but more than that, we deserve uh, to relax better because we deserve recharged attention. We deserve more ideas. We deserve more plans for the future.
1: I loved I love what you said at the beginning about intentionality. I think listening to you there there's there's a difference between doing something intentionally to recharge yourself and and a yeah. compulsion.
0: Yeah.
1: So am I acting out of intention or am I acting out of compulsion and just really trying to get conscious about those two those two things in in hyperfocus which is the book that you've um, that you just referred to which I loved. You, oh thank you. A- attention is really w- what you went hard on. And yeah. you had said that it's I don't know if I read it or I heard you say it but it's it's not the book that I wanted to write but the book that I wanted to read. Talk mm, to me yeah. what were you what were you encountering at the time that made you feel like you needed a manual that didn't exist?
0: Yeah, yeah. So, so I, I noticed. So I, I published uh, my my first book, which was called The Productivity Project, and after it came out, it, it was doing really well all around the world. People were buying it. We, you know, we were publishing it. I think Penguin Random House was doing ten languages at the time, uh, so it was selling and it was kind of leaning back, and thinking, Oh, That was pretty cool. That was a cool journey. That was a cool experience. But uh, around the same time, I noticed that I was becoming quite distracted in my own work. Uh, So I I was following a lot of the advice. Uh, I, I wasn't following a lot of the advice that I was giving. I was checking social media more often. I was checking the news. I was kind of tending to a lot of distractions throughout the day. And noticing this behavior in myself, honestly, it made me a bit uncomfortable because I was going against many of the things that I was preaching about at the time. And so, you know, like any idea that I encounter and get curious about, I started looking over a lot of books on focus and and distraction. And by God, there are a lot of books on focus and distraction. Uh, But what I found was that none of them really went in as deep as so so as to satisfy this curiosity that I had. And so it was that initial observation that there was no real manual that told me, okay, maybe this is a journey that I have to go on myself. So I I thought, okay, this is actually a fun new project. I'm going to dig into the science of attention. And I flew all over the world to meet uh, the most renowned attention researchers. I poured over uh, thousands and read hundreds of, of journal articles about this topic, digging into the the neuroscience the the science of of uh, attention, which le- led to a lot of the science of novelty and how we we tend to crave the novel distractions around us more than any other thing. Um, I did a bunch of experiments on myself, like the boredom experiment, like creating the perfect uh, distraction free ritual, uh, the, you know these sorts of things to, all to get to the bottom of the science of of attention. And so it, that was really the journey is being able to admit to myself wait a second maybe I don't have my stuff together with regard to focus maybe nobody does and so there's a, a potential to to find something new and connect some ideas that other people hadn't before
1: I'm going to ask you the same question I asked you about the productivity project what's the mm-hmm. most what's the most surprising thing that you found in all of that research
0: hmm I, I think this kind of goes back to um how hard we are on ourselves when we try to be productive. you know we have this uh this internal dialogue with ourselves, like, ah, oh, stupid Chris, you can't focus. why can you never focus on on things you're supposed to be a productivity expert? blah 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 um but what w- what I found uh, you know in, in the course of this journey, there was one thing that put my mind totally totally. At ease, uh, which is the fact that this isn 't our fault, uh, so uh, on average when we 're focusing on something, especially when we 're in front of a computer, uh, we focus on one thing for just forty seconds before we switch to doing something else so we're we 're an Instagram on our phone, then we bounce over to check our email, then we bounce over to check the news, then we bounce over to a word document, then we bounce back to our phone and and so on and so forth. But what the research suggests is that this isn't our fault, Uh, because there's a mechanism in in our mind that that I just mentioned, uncovering in the research, called the novelty bias. And what the novelty bias does is it lives in our prefrontal cortex, the logical center of our brain. And for every new and novel thing that we direct our attention at, our mind rewards us with a hit of dopamine, that beautiful chemical of Uh, excitement and anticipation of pleasure. Uh, So we bounce over. This is why we bounce between our different applications on our phone, on our computer, on our iPad, all throughout the day. Our life is often a series of screens because of this novelty bias. Uh, But uh, I would say that it's so critical to recognize, and I hope this is something that comes through in the book, uh, that this self-kindness as it relates to how we manage our attention, uh, how we're able to focus throughout the day, that is this self-kindness is step 0 to managing our attention a bit better because it really isn't our fault when we look at the science we just have this novelty bias embedded within our brain that by the way has served us pretty well uh, up until this point in human history because you know we used to in our evolutionary history we might we might have been building a fire for our village but then we noticed a a rustling of the leaves by the fire pit. We looked over, we saw a tab- saber-toothed tiger, and we dealt with the threat. We slayed the tiger or just ran away. Maybe I, I would. I feel I'd probably be one of the ones that ran away um, <laughs> in our evolutionary history. But we dealt with the novel threat, and we survived to live another day and build another fire. But these days, the nearest tigers are at the zoo, and novel threats and pleasurable things abound all around us. So I I think knowing it's not our fault, but knowing that for the same reason that it's not our fault, we also have an uphill battle for focusing in the modern world. I think that's, for me at least, that was the biggest uh, takeaway and from which all the the tactics stemmed from.
1: You had said that uh, attention is the most constrained ingredient and I know from doing this podcast for a number of years now, it keeps coming back to that. You know our attention, I've yeah. talked to you know people from Silicon Valley, um, FBI hostage negotiators, um, CEOs, entrepreneurs, you know, m- meditation experts, and it always yeah. comes back to that, the most valuable currency that we have, the most, the, the most valued currency on the planet at the moment that is traded in is attention. Yeah. Every organization trades in your attention as its most valuable currency. You have a finite amount to spend. And yet even in knowing that, and just speaking for myself here, you know, I still feel like on occasions I spend it very willingly and I sell it very cheaply. Mm. Why? Why do we why do we not value it as a currency as much as we should?
0: Because in the moment, it doesn't really matter how we spend our attention. Um, And this is, I think, another one of the key things that I realized is in the moment, it doesn't matter that we check Twitter. Uh, Unless, you know, we're in the middle of a surgical procedure or a meeting or we're giving a presentation for a group of people, it usually doesn't matter that we don't spend our attention um, well you know, that we're a bit distracted. But I think something so critical to know with regard to how we manage our attention is how the state of our attention really determines the state of our lives. So a moment never exists in isolation. It exists within the broader context of a life. And this is another piece of compelling uh, literature that I had the opportunity to put together is that when we feel overwhelmed, in every moment, our mind connects those moments of feeling overwhelmed into a narrative that our life is overwhelmed in general. Uh, you know, if we're distracted in each moment, too, you know, never mind if our attention's overwhelmed, if our attention is distracted, you know, we feel that we don't have a purpose in life because we look back to our past and we say, oh, in every moment of the day and the week and the month and the year, I was, my mind was somewhere where I wasn't, so I must have not had a clear direction, a clear purpose. Uh, You know, we, same, same is true if we make an active effort to cultivate our attention. And so we, we focus on the good things without, you know, you know, looking at the, bad you know, neglecting the bad things that need to be fixed. But, you know, we remain optimistic. uh, We remain focused in that same way our life becomes more meaningful. So I think this is uh, the, the reason for that is there's a huge, huge disconnect and importance uh, between the value of our attention in the moment and overall in our life. So this is why you know we know logically that we need to manage our attention a bit better because focus is one of the, as you said, you know, most constrained ingredient uh, in our productivity in our life. We know this to be the case overall and generally speaking, but we don't work with that same level of awareness in every single moment when we need to. That's when we need to do it the most. That's when the rubber actually meets the road for for putting this stuff into practice.
1: It's it's almost like saving, right? I'm listening to you and I'm, Mm. I'm thinking how similar this is to monetary advice. It's like... You know getting very aware that that this small a moment or this small amount doesn't matter much right now, but over the collection of time, the trajectory of time, when it adds up, it's going to completely change everything
0: yeah oh uh, that's a it's a great analogy yeah it's it's like that quote from Annie Dillard that I may butcher, but I'll try to remember but she she essentially wrote. How we spend our days is how we spend our lives. Um, I, I would I would change that just a little bit. That how we spend our moments is how we spend our lives because they are what accumulate to make a life.
1: I want to go back to that budgeting analysis uh, uh, analogy. I'm getting my words all mixed up <laughs> because I want to talk about blocking. Mm. I want to talk about blocking because blocking is something I hadn't heard of until recently, and my business manager. It's her favorite thing to do. And I resisted and resisted and resisted again because any kind of a structure I will resist and resist until I realize that it's actually helpful. And the way that I got my head around it is it's essentially, um, it's essentially budgeting for your time. So you block out X amount of time for this and you block out an hour a day for emails and you block out, um, you know, your exercise. And so your week is completely blocked. Going back to that intentionality piece that you talked about, your week is is 100% intentional. Now, do you do – is that a practice that you do? And if it is – what are the time? What timescales have you found to be the most effective? Is to concentrate in? Is it is it two hour mm. blocks, hour blocks, three hour blocks? Does it depend on the activity?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. I, I think it would largely depend. Uh, you know, the the level to which blocking works on whether we're makers or managers. So if you have somebody who's a maker, and so somebody who's a programmer or an artist of a different kind, um, you know, one meeting. In their afternoon might throw off their entire day because they'll be thinking, "Oh, wait, I have this this thing later on in the day." Uh, But if you're a manager and you're used to just these thirty and twenty and forty five and sixty minute appointments that you're juggling around, uh, you know, it, it it might be the opposite end of the spectrum where you okay. That I have time to pencil this in, and so I'll pencil in the meeting this afternoon. I I would say that the length of the time blocks that we have uh, depend largely on whether we do maker or manager type work. So if we're a manager, maybe a 30-minute chunk of time between two meetings that were two or three meetings in a row to begin with. That might work for us, but if we're more kind of a an artist type, a creator, uh, a you know a, somebody who wants to do this hyper focused work uh, in a different way, I, I think a larger chunk of time is it works best. And so, uh, I actually have ma- maker and manager type days. And full credit where credit is due. I think it's Paul Graham who who coined the terms maker and manager. Um, but I have maker and manager type days. So a manager type day will be all of the pre-calls that I have for upcoming talks. It'll be interviews. It'll be people who I'm interviewing. It'll be podcast recordings. It'll be all these different things that need to be scheduled. And a maker day will be freer. I'll have space in the afternoon if I want to go for a walk through nature to do that if I want to just take some time in the afternoon to pick up a book that I'm in the middle of blurbing all the time to do that uh so it, it'll really depend but uh, you know time chunking is an interesting thing um I personally don't do it uh because what what I usually do is I start with the, the beginning of the day looking at the intentions that I set for the day I usually set 3 of them because it's a small enough number that you know, it forces me to kind of essentialize and determine what's important. But I think, you know, if I do time blocking, I usually don't. But usually, an hour or two at once. So there's time to warm up to the task and dive into it after that. Um, and usually, something that works well is to give yourself the choice to do that task or do nothing. And so this is this is my, uh, you know secret to writing, if it can be called a secret, is what I'll do is I'll give myself a choice to either write a book or do nothing. So I'll I'll just sit there with a blank look in front of my computer, staring at the notes, which is allowed. I'm allowed to do nothing, but I could also write. Um, And I think that book comes from an author of some kind, who's not me, that I sold that from. <laughs> but yeah, I, I think it, you know th- this speaks to kind of the essential truth behind so many different productivity strategies out there uh, that we need to really take what works for us and leave the rest. Uh, so so for me, taking the maker and manager idea and integrating that into my days and not necessarily integrating the time blocking uh, works really well for me, but other people swear by time blocking. And I, I don't really think there's a right or a wrong answer there. We have to pick what works for us and leave the rest.
1: Just a quick question on the back of that. Yeah. Curiosity. How do you handle your emails? Do you, do you do a certain amount of time of email a day? Do you a day a week? How have you learned to manage email throughout of all, all of your experiments?
0: Sprints have Sprints. been my favorite strategy that I've encountered. So I, I try to, it's difficult when you're waiting on a bunch of really important responses to not check impulsively. So that's that's the situation that I'm in right now. We're pitching my next book, and so I'm waiting and you know refreshing more than than I ought to. So I'm checking maybe uh, five to ten times a day now, <laughs> as opposed to less often, which is still less than, than it once was, but higher than than it usually is. Uh, but sprints are my favorite solution for uh, for the texts as well for emails for any instant message. Uh, so what I'll do is at the top of the hour or just a random hour, I'll set a timer for 15 for 20 minutes and in that time uh, just blow through as much of my email inbox as I possibly can. And that works. It works well and then I can do focus work the rest of the time.
1: Got it. Got it. Cuz I think that email is the is still I think the silent the silent killer. of it really A focus yeah. and productivity for for most people. Um, I just want to very quickly talk about probably what was, I think, the largest aha moment for me in, in your book. And it was this concept that, that we are not distracted. We are overstimulated. Mm. And I don't know why that was such a big aha moment for me. I think that the being kinder to yourself part that you mentioned where you're like, why, why am I constantly flipping <laughs> off here and, and flipping off there? And what is wrong with me? To being overstimulated feels like something I can do something about. It just feels a more practical headspace to be in where you go, okay, well, if I am constantly reacting and responding to those dopamine hits, I'm
0: obviously
1: obviously getting more and more addicted, which means I have way too many things going on. And so I need to down the level of stimulation, calm my brain down, and then I'll be able to work without distraction. What... Can you walk through that distinction? You probably do a much more eloquent job than I did. That distinction between being distracted versus being overstimulated.
0: Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. It's, um, you know, we, we tend to look at the fact that we can't focus and that we're so distracted. And we tend to see that as the central problem that we face with regard to our attention today. We think, oh, I can't focus because I'm distracted. But I think the key that we need to understand with regard to our attention is that the level of distraction that we face is a symptom of the real problem, which run, runs much, much more deeply than that, which is the fact that our mind is overstimulated, like you said. Um, because this is the root problem. The, the, our overstimulated mind is why we crave distraction. And that novelty bias, it, it connects with a little bit as well. Uh, so we check Instagram, we get a hit of dopamine, and our mind becomes a bit more stimulated. Then we bounce over to email, we get a hit of dopamine, our mind becomes a bit more stimulated. And it gets to the point where there's so much uh, dopamine coursing through our mind, that our mind just wants to maintain a certain level of stimulation. And in, in our case, it's usually the fact that it's overstimulated, if anything. So I, I think this is the central thing that we need to keep in mind, that the reason that our mind craves and seeks out distraction that that we can entertain ourselves with is so deeply embedded within us. Um, and, but because of that, because it's so biologically ingrained, I think we do need to become a bit kinder to ourselves. But it, it's it's that compulsion, right, to overstimulate because of that deep, rewarding that our mind does of that behavior, that really is the problem. You
1: you mentioned that you have a disconnection ritual every evening and a tech Sabbath every Sunday, which I just, I loved that phrase, a tech <laughs> Sabbath. Yeah.
0: Um,
1: are there any other, I mean, the dis, disconnection ritual, I'm guessing that there's a certain point in the evening where, you know, everything goes off, all technology gets put away. And the same with the Sunday. Are there any other Rituals that you've developed that help with focus.
0: Oh, absolutely! Uh, One of my favorites is the rule of three. Uh, So this is how I start every uh, single morning. So right when I wake up, before I connect to the internet, you know, I usually wake up before eight a.m. But not not every day, but most days. You know, I'm a bit of a a night owl. So there are some days where I sleep in past that. Uh, but every single day before I connect to my phone, to the iPad, to the uh, to the emails that have come in overnight from, from all, all the international countries that that I deal with, I'll take a step back. I have a little notepad. It's in my hand right now. Maybe you can hear it in the microphone. <laughs> it, I, I think the microphone cancels what, what's behind it, but I'm not sure if you can hear it. But essentially, I write down... The, the three intentions for a given day, so today uh number one was deliver a, a helpful web, webinar for a client on on how to focus uh, Number two was have fun in some interviews, and number three was to to have a good conversation with uh w- with my editor and that 's kind of the main things that I wanted to accomplish today, and that 's what my day orbited around and and you know there 's obviously the minutiae around. Uh, those three intentions. But at the same time, that's what I wanted to get out of the day. And so that ritual every single morning where, you know, taking a step back, shutting off autopilot mode, thinking, what do I want to actually accomplish today? What do I want to get out of this day? That's my all time favorite productivity ritual. Honestly, I make that time back uh, a hundred times over and how much more intelligently I work because just taking a few moments to decide that, okay, I can only do three things. If I can only do three things, what's the most important today out of these dozen things that are on my plate right now? So I do that every single morning and at the start of every single week. Um, It's it's one of my favorite productivity rituals. Another second one, if I may, is my meditation ritual. And I know a lot of folks on the podcast come on and talk about meditation. There's a reason that a lot of people who now have a voice and ideas that are worth sharing talk and write about meditation because meditation allows you to slow down enough so that you can observe your good ideas in the first place, so that you can give your mind the calm that it needs to form ideas and thoughts that are valuable and worth sharing and that make a difference. And I find that, especially with regard to the writing, that I do meditation. Um, you know, I, I make the time back that I spend meditating. So, uh, so many more times, so, so many times over. It's just, it's just, you know, for sharpening focus, for being able to manage our attention a bit more deeply and well, it's in a league all of its own.
1: Just very practically on that as someone that's, that's dabbled messily with meditation. I don't know. Can you meditate in a messy way? I feel like I do um do you every
0: meditation's messy I'm like so glad to <laughs> you hear know, that it's it's our mind
1: I feel like I, I feel like I do it very messily as in in all ways <laughs> in terms of scheduling yeah. and, and every other way what I mean there's there's a lot of different um thought schools on meditation there's transcendental meditation which is 20 minutes twice a day there's um, you know, there's people who do it for an hour. There's people who, who do it literally while they walk and walking meditation. Do you have a, a favorite school of thought or a favorite structure?
0: Yeah, it's a mindfulness meditation. So, uh, Vipassana meditation is what I practice. But what I will say is that the research shows that it actually doesn't matter <laughs> what kind of meditation we practice. Um, I actually am pouring over all the research that I can possibly find, uh, with regard to meditation and productivity right now, because I'm putting together something called uh, an Audible original. So there, the A- A- Audible's an audiobook website, just just kind of like Netflix as Netflix originals. There's Audible originals too. And I'm writing one on the productivity benefits of meditation. Um, and, and what what I think is because of all the benefits that that we experience from this practice, I think we make nine minutes back in every... Uh, for every minute of meditation that we do, because our thoughts are more clean, uh, we're able to think more deeply, we focus more deeply, our mind wanders less uh, w- without our permission and, and all these sorts of uh, sorts of factors. But some of the research that, that I'm finding shows that it actually doesn't matter what kind of meditation we practice. If we're first starting out, I will say, if, we're, if you're first starting out and you want more productivity, benefits. Mindfulness meditation might be the one that's most worth pursuing, but not so much more than the other styles of meditation that if you already practice another kind, you should, you should switch over or do something else or, or switch away from TM, just, you know, or anything like that. But it's, uh,
1: it's, sorry to interrupt. Is there, is there a period of time? Is there a length if you can only do it for five minutes, is that is it's better than nothing? Is it yeah. Does it need to be a minimum of, of 10 minutes, 15 minutes? I think that, you know, for a lot of people, the ideal of meditation gets in the way of doing it at all. You know, I yeah. would need to sit there very quietly and very still for an entire hour of the day <laughs> and I don't have an entire hour of the day. Yeah. Does, does it matter at all? Like if you can just get five minutes in, is it better than nothing?
0: Oh, for sure. And, and I think, you know, meditation is the kind of thing where Five minutes every single day is better than two hours on Sunday. So it's the regularity of a practice. What, what I would say is if you can do 12 to 15 minutes, 12 uh, from the research that I've seen seems to be kind of the minimal viable dose where you experience the mental health benefits of meditation, uh, but uh, honestly, any amount.
1: Well, I'm uh, going to ask my final my final question now. and And my final question usually revolves around what I would call the one thing, which is you know, I think we're lucky as communicators, as as thought leaders or anybody who's putting their ideas out there into the world, I think we're lucky if somebody takes one thing that we've said and puts it into practice. I think that that's a, that's a win. And so if somebody was listening to this podcast and they just did one thing differently tomorrow to help improve their focus, to help improve their ability to be able to put their ideas into motion in a consistent and deliberate way – what would the one thing
0: be? Mm. Notice how the different... Let Let me really zero this in on, on something that I see people struggling with right now. And that's that we're not aware enough of how the technology that we tend to throughout the day makes us feel. So there, there was one study, you know, the, uh, that surrounded news consumption that looked at people... Uh, and how they responded to the, to the events of the Boston Marathon bombing in 2013, I think it was. And there are two groups of participants. The first group of participants uh, were people who watched six or more hours of news coverage about the Boston Marathon bombings, and the second group were runners in the marathon. And what, they, what the researchers found was that those participants who watched six or more hours of news coverage about the bombings were more likely to develop PTSD than somebody who is in the marathon
1: really? and at
0: the bombing and personally affected by it.
1: That's incredible. In- that is incredible.
0: It, it, we, we don't realize the extent to which what we consume influences our, our mental health. You know, the single biggest predictor of fear and anxiety in our lives is how much time we spend watching TV talk shows Uh, In TV news programs, there was one other study uh, conducted by Sean Acor, a researcher out of Harvard University, where he and I think he actually teamed up with Arianna Huffington for this study Um, that they exposed people to three minutes. Of negative news, just three minutes, one, two, three minutes of negative news first thing in the morning. And what they found when they measured people's levels of happiness uh, six to eight hours later was the people that had consumed the news relative to those who did not were 27% less likely to say that they were happy at the end of the day. You know, th- th- this is something that I keep coming back to in the research, which is that the state of our attention determines the state of our lives because the, the moments of our life accumulate, they build, they add up to make uh, a perception of who we believe ourselves to be, right? The state of our attention determines the state of our lives. So if, if I can offer one bit of advice for people to tune into is notice how the apps uh, on your phone the websites that you tend to, the news that you consume, whether it's through a talk show or CNN or wherever, notice how that makes you feel. Because it might be bumming you out in ways that you're not aware of right now, that if you modified your behavior around that consumption, uh, your mental health might become stronger, your ability to manage your attention might become stronger because you don't Uh, seek out more stimulation after seeking some out in the morning. So if I can offer up one bit of final advice for people to walk away with, that might be it. Notice how the different uh, apps that you tend to, the different things you pay attention to throughout the day make you feel. Um, Kind of insert a double loop of reflection around those things. Like, I, I don't know if you've ever fired up your phone and you've been on Instagram or something. You swipe over to the wrong side of the screen and your your front facing camera fires up. You know, we never have uh, an ear to ear grin on our face when we <laughs> notice ourselves on the screen. That it's always is kinda so like,
1: true. It, I'm always amazed at how much I'm frowning. That's absolutely yeah. true.
0: It's this zonked out look that we have. And it's one that we're not aware of. You know, our mind can't distinguish the difference between something that stimulates us and something that makes us happy. And, but we can when we think back on things logically. Um, and we need to modify our behavior because of that.
1: Well, thank you. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for offering yourself up as a human guinea pig and, and, <laughs> in a world that I think is getting, should be getting more and more attention at the moment yeah. which as there are more drains on our attention the more we need to become aware and get better at being able to hold it as the finite sacred valuable resource that that it is so i'm going to send you off to to watch the office and eat your <laughs> eat your sunflower seeds again <laughs> but it's been a real pleasure
0: thank you so much that was fun
1: Thanks so much for listening. We really hope you enjoyed this episode and found tons and tons of useful ideas and insights for growing your own influence. Now, for those of you who want to take the next step in your influence journey, you want to take everything you have learned today and just ramp it up a notch, or you just want to learn more about the power of thought leadership when it comes to growing a business, an enterprise, or spreading an idea, there is now also a research paper that you can download from my website julymasters.com. pop in your email address it is free we will not spam you but it is jam-packed full of all the ideas tools and case studies that I have come across in 10 years of doing this work it's called the influencer code it's not long but it is full of value so download it keep it share it juice it for all it is worth I hope that it makes a massive difference in your career or business. Thank you always to our producer, co-founder and the main brain, I'm not joking, behind the Inside Influence podcast, Lauren Kelly. In the words of Jerry Maguire, you complete me. And if you did enjoy the show, then we would love you to share this podcast and leave us a review on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, whatever your platform of choice happens to be. And don't forget to subscribe to make sure that you never miss I'm into it.